I'm Alex York. I'm the associate pastor, and I have a good excuse for being up here with a cane. I would love to tell you it was like a snow skiing accident or I was hang gliding or whatever, but I'm just kind of, my knee wore out, and so I had my knee replaced a couple of weeks ago, and progressing well, really appreciate that. Good doctor, if you ever need an orthopedic, I can give you a, a name. I don't get a referral bonus, but I ought to. And so one of the things that was interesting to me, and I, I think as people ask about the surgery, they kind of are surprised by this, that I walked out of the surgery center a couple hours after the surgery. I was using a walker, but the doctor's like, no, 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 no. Entropy is the enemy of, of a successful joint surgery. You have to be moving, and as soon as you can, and as often as you can, you need to put weight on it. You're not gonna, I put all kinds of cool stuff in there. You're not gonna break it. So I, I was going up and down steps uh, slowly, gingerly, the day of the surgery and you know, doing physical therapy the next morning. The whole idea is that if you let it sit, then scar tissue develops and the scar tissue slows down your recovery. It means that later it's a much more painful thing that, that has to be taken care of because it limits your flexibility, your range of motion. The absolute healthiest thing you can do after a knee surgery is motion. Now, I've been experimenting this last week. I've gotten off pain medication, so like I went to Walmart, I got to use my handicap sticker finally, which is great. And I, oh, come on, you guys, you want one. I know you do. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the few perks of this position. And so I use the cane. I can actually walk around without the cane, but if you do the Frankenstein walk in Walmart, little kids get scared. So the cane makes me look, you know, much more appealing. I'm just a little old guy, you know, with a cane. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's not scary. Nobody calls security. And I even got an offer for a senior discount this week, which is awesome, you know. I was like, uh, sure, how old do you have? Oh, no, sorry, not old enough. But So in spiritual terms, I think also motion is really important for health. We started a series a couple of weeks ago for Lent. Lent is kind of the six weeks leading up to Easter, and traditionally, uh, a lot of churches have said, we're going to take this season, we're going to give it a special name, and we're going to spend the time focusing our hearts on Christ, what he did at the cross for us, and how he got there. And we don't want to just, you know, celebrate Easter morning, woohoo, have an Easter egg hunt, go out for a nice lunch and dress up and figure that's the end of it. Let's really prepare our hearts. So the series that Ed started a couple of weeks ago is called Kinetic. And the idea behind it is that whenever you look at the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, you see movement from him, very intentional, deliberate movement towards people. And as a result of that movement towards people, there is a movement in their life as well. So last week, Ed was talking about Nicodemus and how Jesus talked to Nicodemus. And, and then over a period of the next couple of years, Nicodemus' life was changed. This week, we're going to talk about it's the very next chapter of John, a completely different kind of person. This is a woman who was not a religious leader. She was not even one of God's chosen. She was a spiritual outsider. And Jesus moved towards her and pursued her. And as a result of that, she began to move in a way that influenced the people around her. So the idea I want you to think about this morning, I would call trajectory. And I used to think of trajectories just like that's the path a bullet takes. But I, I looked up in the dictionary and trajectories is the path an object takes as a result of forces acting upon it. So one of the forces might be thrust. Another one might be gravity. Another would be wind resistance. And so, you know, a missile has a trajectory that's influenced by a number of factors. What I want you to think about is, in this particular story this morning, I think we're going to find that this woman's trajectory in life was dramatically changed because of an encounter she had with Jesus. And my hope is, 
as we wrestle with this passage in John chapter 4, maybe God might want to make some course corrections for us. So I hope you'll be open to that. This morning we're going to read from the voice translation, which is a modern translation. What's interesting to me about the voice is because it's one of the newer translations, it's one of the most accessible. The, the language is not 70s language like the NIV. It's actually, you can read it and it sounds almost conversational. These are translators that went back to the original text and have tried to use the latest scholarship to help them uh, fine-tune you know, the way this reads, but it's very readable. Another thing that's interesting about the voice translation is it was designed with the idea that God's Word ought to be read aloud. And so it's almost like a script, and we're going to have it up on the screen so you can follow along if you want. And so it'll say, Jesus, colon, and then it tells you what Jesus said, and it'll say, then the woman said, and then the crowd did this. And, and so it's really kind of cool. I would argue every translation has strengths and weaknesses, so I'm not saying this is the best translation. I, I just think it brings this passage to life. And we want to encourage you guys to read along with us in the book of John. John is a fairly short biography of Jesus. We're only in chapter 4 and we're three weeks into this. So if you read like a chapter a week, you'll be way ahead of us. So you could catch up this week. And I would encourage you to read from a couple of different translations. Read John chapter 4 and New Living and then in the NIV or something like that. Because as you look at different translations, they'll have different nuances that come to light. So I'm going to read out of the voice and I want you guys to kind of follow along. And it's a lengthy passage, so kind of apologize ahead of time, a lot of ground to cover, but it's a really powerful passage when it comes to thinking about uh, God's movement in our life and the kind of faith that moves us forward. So John chapter 4, the picture was becoming clear to the Pharisees that Jesus had gained a following much larger than that of John the Baptist, the wandering prophet. Now, he could see that the Pharisees were beginning to plot against him. This was because his disciples were busy ritually cleansing many new disciples through baptism. He chose to leave Judea, where most Pharisees lived, and return to a safer location in Galilee. This was a trip that would take them through Samaria. In a small Samaritan town known as Sychar, Jesus and his entourage stopped to rest at the historic well that Jacob gave his son Joseph. It was about noon when Jesus found a spot to sit close to the well, while the disciples ventured off to find provisions. From his vantage, he watched as a Samaritan woman approached to draw some water. Unexpectedly, he spoke to her. Would you draw water? Give me a drink. I can't believe that you, a Jew, would associate with me a Samaritan woman, much less ask me to give you a drink. Jews, you see, have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus says, you don't know the gift of God or who is asking you for a drink of this water from Jacob's well. Because if you did, you would have asked him for something greater, and he would have given you the living water. She replies, Sir, you sit by this deep well, a thirsty man, without a bucket in sight. Where does this living water come from? Are you claiming superiority to our father Jacob, who labored long and hard to dig and maintain this well so that he could share clean water with his sons, grandchildren, and cattle? Drink this water, and your thirst is quenched only for a moment. You must return to this well again and again, but I offer water that will become a wellspring within you that gives life throughout eternity. You'll never be thirsty again. The woman said, please, sir, give me some of this water so I'll never be thirsty and never again have to make the trip to this well. Then bring your husband to me. The woman replies, I don't have a husband. 
Jesus says, technically, you're telling the truth. But you've had five husbands and are currently living with a man you're not married to. I love this because she kind of changes the subject a little bit. (laughs) Awkward moment. She says, sir, it's obvious to me that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped here on this mountain, but your people say that Jerusalem is the only place for all to worship. So which is it? Jesus says, woman, I tell you that neither is so. Believe this, a new day is coming. In fact, it's already here when the importance will not be placed on the time and place of worship, but on the truthful hearts of worshipers. You worship what you don't know, while we worship what we do know, because God's salvation is coming through the Jews. The Father is spirit, and he is seeking followers whose worship is sourced in truth and deeply spiritual as well. Regardless of whether you were in Jerusalem or on this mountain, if you do not seek the Father, then you do not worship. The woman said, these mysteries will be made clear by he who is promised, the anointed one. Jesus says to her, the anointed is speaking to you. I'm the one you've been looking for. The disciples returned to him and they gathered around him in amazement that he would openly break their customs by speaking to this woman, but none of them would ask what he was looking for or why he was speaking with her. The woman went back to town, leaving her water pot behind. She stopped men and women on the streets and told them about what had happened. The woman said, I met a stranger who knew everything about me. Come and see for yourselves. Can he be the anointed one? A crowd came out of the city and approached Jesus during All of this, the disciples were urging Jesus to eat the food they had gathered. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Well, the disciples to one another said, is it possible that someone else brought him food while we were away? And Jesus said, I receive my nourishment by serving the will of the Father who sent me and completing his work. You've heard others say, be patient. We have four more months to wait until the crops are ready for the harvest. But I say, take a closer look, and you will see that the fields are ripe and ready for the harvest. The harvester is collecting his pay, harvesting fruit, ripe for eternal life. So even now, he and the sower are celebrating their fortune. The saying may be old, but it's true. One person sows, another one reaps. I sent you to harvest where you have not labored. Someone else took the time to plant and cultivate, and you feast on the fruit of their labor. Meanwhile... Because one woman shared with her neighbors how Jesus exposed her past and present. The village of Sychar was transformed. Many Samaritans heard and believed. The Samaritans approached Jesus and repeatedly invited him to stay with them, so he lingered there for two days on their account. With the words that came from his mouth, there were many more believing Samaritans. They began their faith journey because of the testimony of the woman beside the well. But when they heard for themselves, they were convinced the one they were hearing was and is God's anointed, the liberating king sent to rescue the entire world. Let's pray. Jesus, you know the condition of our hearts. You know all the things that we've tucked away that other people don't see. They could be secret dreams or thoughts or uh, brokenness that we try to keep other people from seeing, worries or concerns that no one else knows about. And you know about things, God, that we have no idea about. Situation in the world that we're going to hear about this afternoon, but you're already there in the midst of things, and you know exactly what to do. We just pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would help us to hear your voice, and I ask, Father, that you would speak through me, and that in spite of my 
frailty and inability, the power of your word would sink into our hearts and change us. Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. So what I'd like to do is take a couple of minutes and have us just work our way through this passage because while I think reading through it in a good translation like that, you get you know a good chunk of the information, but there are lots of things that we don't pick up with a quick read through. And basically the story goes like this. The Pharisees are paying more and more attention to Jesus. This is early in his ministry, but because his disciples are receiving even more converts than John the Baptist, they're a little worried because anybody who draws attention away from their religious system, which they control and which they determine, you know, how it's going to be done, they're the religious elite, anybody who draws away their followers is a big concern. And John is quick to point out, actually, the Pharisees were wrong. It wasn't Jesus baptizing anybody. His disciples baptized with water like John the Baptist did. But Jesus actually baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was a spiritual baptism when people became his followers. And Jesus decides to withdraw and avoid this possible conflict with the Pharisees. And he came to Judea, to Jerusalem, the capital city for the Passover. But now that that's over, he's ready to go back to the hill country of Galilee. If you were to look at a map of Israel, you would see nestled between the Mediterranean on the west side and kind of the, the Jordan River that runs north and south along the eastern side of the country, in the middle of the map is this area that was Samaria. And below that to the south was Judea, where Jerusalem was, kind of next to the Dead Sea. And then much farther north in the hill country was where the Sea of Galilee was, and the hill country of Galilee, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So for him to get from Judea in the south back up to the hill country in Galilee where he wanted to preach, the most direct route was through Judea. A lot of Jewish religious scholars taught that Samaritans were such bad people that like you did not want to step foot in Samaria because you would be ceremonially unclean if you were a Jew. I mean, you would be contaminating yourself just by being in the same country with these people. They were so far from God, so abominable. If you were a really self-righteous Jewish person, you would venture east of the Jordan River and go way out of your way and bypass the whole area of Samaria to get north. But Jesus took a very direct route and goes through Samaria. We hear the word Samaritan in a lot of people today. If you say, what's a Samaritan? A lot of people go, a Samaritan is a good person because we all know the story about the good Samaritan. And a Samaritan is somebody who stops and helps. We have good Samaritan laws to protect those people that stop and help somebody else. But the whole shocking truth about that story is that the Samaritan was like the arch enemy of the Jews. And so when Jesus tells a story about a Jewish man who's beaten and left for dead, a Samaritan stops and helps them. He's making the most unlikely hero in that story. So there was a lot of conflict between Samaritans and Jews. If you come a little after the reign of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, the high point in Israel's history, about 750 years before Jesus is on the scene, Israel is in two divided kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. And the southern kingdom, Judea, was safe, but the Sumerians were conquered by the Assyrian king. And King Sargon of Assyria, his strategy for taking control of these foreign lands when he would conquer them is he would bring people from other countries in and repopulate so that you couldn't just 
you know, it would be like, I don't know, somebody invading Virginia and saying, we're not going to let you stay Virginia. We're going to bring people from California and like New England and Alaska and Texas, and they're going to change the complexion of things. They're not just going to speak with a southern drawl. They're going to, you know, do all, we're going to bring people from New Jersey in and really change things up. And so it, it kind of changed the culture. And over time, those Jews that had been living in Samaria, they intermarried with all these people from all over the known world. And they intermarried also with the religious cultures that were brought in. And so for a purebred Jew, one of God's chosen people from Judea, the Samaritans were like, I mean, mongrels, half-breeds, people that were like lower than somebody who was a Gentile. So if you were a Jew, you could look out there and you could see people that were godless people. You know, people that were Gentiles, they didn't know anything about God, and they were certainly to be looked down upon. But even lower than that would have been a Samaritan because they were like, I don't know, just some mutts, spiritual mutts who kind of mixed everything together, and they thought they still had some kind of connection with God. Like, just avoid the godless country of Samaria, would you? You don't want to be ritually unclean by hanging out with those people. So it was a little weird that Jesus would venture into Samaria. The Samaritans used the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, as their scripture, whereas Jews would add to that many of the writings of the prophets. And if you think about it, the first five books of the Bible are a great place to start, but man, when you start reading the Old Testament prophets, they liven up the scene a little bit, and they add a lot of energy to many of us, looks like, I don't know, that's a lot of rules and regulations. And the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which was a mountain in Samaria because they couldn't get to Judea and Jerusalem where the temple was. So they kind of like set up an alternative worship site. The problem was Mount Gerizim had also been a site of idol worship for many years. And so they were kind of like choosing their place and the Jews would go like, oh, just pick your own worship site because you can't, you know, admit that you guys are lower than us and you won't lower yourself to come to Jerusalem and worship where we do. So when Jesus shows up in Samaria to this town of Sychar, it's about a two-day journey from Judea. He's tired. He's thirsty. It's the warmest part of the day. It's noon. And he sits down while his disciples go into town to find food and supplies for their journey. This woman from Sychar comes in the middle of the day to Jacob's well. What's interesting about this is there are wells. This well is very well known. If you go to Israel today, you can go to the site of Jacob's well. This is like a, a historic landmark that, I mean, you know, thousands of years, very well known. And the town of Sychar is well placed by archaeologists. And there are numbers of wells that are much closer to Sychar than this one. So first of all, we know that she was venturing out way beyond, like, the closest places to get water. The other thing that's really weird is she's doing it the hottest part of the day. Because women, typically in that time frame, they were the ones that had to go schlep the water into town. They would go in the morning when it was cool, or you'd go at night when it was cool. You wouldn't go in the hottest part of the day. But she ventures way outside of where most of the people from her town would go to get water. And just to be extra sure to avoid people, she does it in the middle of the day. And as we begin to piece together the rest of the story, we realize she is not well respected in her community. She has this relational history I mean, even today, people would, I think most people would go like, wow, married five times. That seems like a lot. Like, you know, what's going on? And we don't know, was it because she was a, a victim of abuse or she was 
a broken person? Or was it because maybe she was a widow and because she had no way to provide for herself, she married one guy, and when that didn't work out, she goes to the next? We we don't know the details. But clearly in her culture, she is someone who is shunned. And she's trying to avoid everyone and keep her head down. And in the middle of that, Jesus sees her and he treats her with unexpected dignity and respect. She didn't expect to be treated like that. So when Jesus, in the middle of of all his humanity, he's tired, he's hot, he's hungry, he asks this woman for a drink. And, And she says, I can't believe you're asking me for a drink. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. What are you thinking? Like, you people despise us. You look down on us. I'm supposed to give you a drink of water? Are you serious? And a further thing that we don't think of, in those days, even a, a Jewish man talking to a Jewish woman without her husband present, like, think of all the temptation that could go on there. So that was shunned. And then what's even more shocking about this is Jesus didn't have anything to drink water from. So he was going to drink from whatever vessel she had. He was, like, literally going to be drinking Samaritan germs. Oh, my gosh! How unclean can you get? There's a parenthetical statement that John makes here that, you know, it just says, because Samaritans and Jews don't associate. And we don't quite read into that all of the, that's an understatement that he's giving us. And Jesus says to her, he's like, you know, if you knew the gift of God, if you understood anything about God's character, how much he loves you, if you understood like, and it's a gift, he's not asking you to do anything. You don't have to be Jewish to receive it. It's just like, if you knew how much God loves you, If you had any idea who you were talking to right now, you'd be asking me for a drink because I can offer you living water. If you were here last week, you remember Nicodemus didn't get it when Jesus said, hey, if you really want a relationship with God, if you want to know what it's all about, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus is really confused about that. (laughs) It's like, hmm, that just sounds really weird. I'm not sure I want any part of that. And here, Jesus, you know, he's just using a word picture. It's pretty convenient. Other places, he's holding up a mustard seed and says, hey, the kingdom of God is a little bit like this mustard seed. So here he is at a well, and he says, living water, that's something you don't know about. And he uses something that is understood to her, something elemental, essential, something familiar and everyday. And what he's getting at is just like you will die if you don't get a regular intake of water. I mean, your body is designed to survive only if you have a regular intake of clean water. Everything about the way you're structured, your cells are designed to be fueled and refreshed by water. Your very life depends on it. But if you had spiritual water, if you understood that your soul is the same way, and it is parched and dry, and it needs this constant refilling of spiritual water, then you would want this. Not just once in your life or once a week on Sundays, but a continually refilling kind of reserve of spiritual water. Jesus says, I can supply you with a never-ending flow of this life-giving spiritual water, not just a couple of drops, not just a trickle here and there, but a wellspring that flows from inside of you. And she doesn't get it. It just goes right above her head. And she goes, wait a minute. So you're thirsty. This well is deep. You don't have any way to get water. How are you offering me water? And then she goes on. And and what she's getting at is like, wait, are, are you saying you're better than me? 
I mean, I know you're Jews, and, and you think Jews are better than Samaritans. Are you dissing Jacob's well? Because Jacob was a pretty big deal in Jewish history, too. And this well has been here for hundreds of years, and it's watered Jews and Samaritans for generations. Are you making some kind of a comment about who you are and who I'm not? And Jesus doesn't say, hey, how dare you question me? He didn't get offended by that. He very gently kind of rolls with the conversation. He doesn't get frustrated by a genuine question. He says, look, let me explain it to you. Anybody that drinks from this water, they're going to be satisfied for a moment, for an hour, for a day, but then they're going to get thirsty again, and they're going to have to come back and get more water. But I'm talking about a different kind of water. I'm talking about the kind of water that continually wells up inside of you, and it fuels you with eternal, abundant life. I didn't know it until I started studying this passage, but there are Old Testament roots to this idea of living water. So in Isaiah chapter 12, we hear that with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God, speaking through the prophet, says, you're going to draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what it means to be a God follower, is to just draw water from the well of salvation. Or Jeremiah 2.13 God is rebuking his people, and he says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. God calls himself the spring of living water. Now, this woman is apparently not an Old Testament scholar, and she's still thinking that Jesus is talking literally. And so she says, Well, hey, if you're talking about water that saves me from having to come here and carry this heavy jar and back and forth every day, I am in. So sign me up. I love the idea of a delivery service, purified water. Drop it off. Yes, that's great. The living water that Jesus is offering isn't, you know, like a promise that life won't be hard. He didn't say you're not going to ever be thirsty or that you're not going to be parched or drained. What he's saying is, no matter what you're facing, I'm offering a fountain that will refresh and restore and replenish your weary soul. So Jesus says, look, go and get your husband, and I'll tell you more about this water. Now, that feels like an abrupt shift, not a natural progression, because up until this point, you know, they've been talking about water. They've been talking a little bit about some spiritual things. Maybe there was a little cultural back and forth. And now Jesus says, go and get your husband. But it feels like he's shifting the conversation now to be more personal. And he's probing a little bit here. And we realize quickly that Jesus knows some things about this woman. And he's trying to move the conversation in a more personal direction. She answers very concisely and doesn't give a whole lot of information. She just says, I don't have a husband. I, I suspect maybe that was a well-rehearsed answer that, you know, maybe when somebody in town said, hey, how you doing? Tell me about your family. I don't have a husband right now, you know. Watch what Jesus does here, though. He commends her for being accurate and truthful. So he doesn't go like, aha, I caught you. <laughs> You have failed at relationships an awful lot, and you're living with a guy. I mean, like, I caught you red-handed. He says, you know, what you said is the truth. It's just not the whole truth. And what it feels like right here, this is when John in chapter 1 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He's 100% grace, 100% truth. He doesn't compromise on either end. Jesus is being truthful with this woman in a way that just kind of like, I'm, I'm thinking she's realizing, like, oh, my gosh, he knows. You know, she's flabbergasted. She spent 
so much energy trying to hide her relational failures from people. And Jesus, in just this one statement, go get your husband, has just exposed all of this. But he's also showing 100% grace here. He doesn't give her a lecture. He commends her for being truthful. Well, clearly the conversation has gotten a lot more awkward for this woman than she wants it to be. So she kind of goes, uh, uh, you're obviously a man of God. You're like a prophet. You know things that ordinary people don't know. And I've got some religious questions, by the way. You know, I, let's talk religion. That sounds like a good topic. So Jesus doesn't press the issue. He picks up the topic. She says, you know, if you're a prophet, tell me who's right. We worship here on that mountain over there. You can see it from Jacob's well, Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. And she says, we worship on this mountain. You guys worship over there. So who's right? Who do you think is right? And Jesus' reply is awesome because he says, you know what? We've gotten to the point in human history. You may not realize it, but the time is now when God no longer cares about where you worship or the tradition you come from because it's not about the place. It's about the position of your heart. It's great that you Samaritans worship God, but you don't know the whole story. You've got the first five books of the Old Testament. We Jews have the whole thing, so we know more. And in fact, uh, God chose us to be the ones to share salvation with the world. So we've got the full story, the, the whole picture. You don't. But God the Father is a spirit, and so he requires us to worship him in a spiritual way. It's not about, you know, like a religious ritual or you go and you do certain things and that squares things up with God. God wants you to come with an authentic heart, with a heartfelt faith that goes beyond just showing up once a week to do your religious duty. And it shows up in your everyday life because your heart is wrapped around a relationship with the living God. No matter what your background is, no matter where you worship, if you don't worship the Father with your whole heart and your whole life, you're wasting your time. And in response to that, the woman has a, a, actually a pretty good response. She said, you know, I know there's a Messiah coming. You know, I've heard about that, and when this promised one comes, I have a feeling he's going to be able to straighten all of this out. I have great confidence that one day this Savior from the God of heaven is going to step into our world, and he's going to resolve all these kind of questions and issues and help us to focus on what's really true. And that's when Jesus says, you know what? It's interesting, the person you're talking about, that's me. I'm right here this point in the story that the disciples return, been off getting supplies for the journey, and the conversation with the woman is abruptly stopped. They kind of interrupt it. And the disciples see Jesus talking to this local woman as they approach. They're amazed that Jesus, a, a good uh, rabbi who, you know, knows Scripture, why is he talking to this woman? Like, I'm not going to ask him. Are you going to ask him, Peter? I'm not asking him. You ask him, John. You know? They don't want to get into it because usually when they ask stupid questions... Jesus sort of straightens them out. So they're afraid to ask him. And meanwhile, the woman leaves her water pot behind because she's in such a hurry to get back to her village. She's so excited. She just starts stopping people in the village, telling them, like, I met this amazing man, and he knows all kinds of stuff about me that he shouldn't know. Do you think this could be the Messiah? I mean, we've heard about this. Is it possible? And now there's a buzz in the streets, and there's a crowd forming, and people go, wait, where, where was this guy? Hey, let's go out to the, let, let's go here and see what's going on. And so a crowd starts forming. And meanwhile, the disciples are excited to offer Jesus some food. Hey, Jesus, look, we got you a Snickers bar. It's going to be, you know, like, aren't you proud of us? We went out and got supplies for the journey. And Jesus says something very strange to them. 
He says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not that hungry. I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And everyone's like, hmm, you think somebody brought him, you know, a happy meal while we were gone? What's going on? They didn't get that he was talking about things spiritually, but he explains to them, if you want to know what really satisfies the hunger of my soul, it's to do the will of God. It's to complete the work that was assigned to me. He called me to come and to teach and to demonstrate how immense his love for mankind is. And I had this chance while you were gone, I had this chance to do that for somebody who's a spiritual outsider. And then there's some talk about reaping and sowing and harvesting and planting. And because we didn't grow up, most of us, didn't grow up in an agrarian culture, it doesn't make sense to us. It was hard for the disciples to understand too. But basically the idea is this. Everybody back then knew that if you plant, you stick stuff in the ground and you water it and you hope some sun and good weather blesses it and God is gracious. And then four months later, you come back and there's stuff you know, on the vine. There's fruit or vegetables or whatever you're growing. So there's this lag between when you plant and when you harvest. And Jesus says, yeah, you know, that's what people say, but you don't get it. There is a harvest right this very moment. There's a harvest you have no clue about, and you didn't plant it, so you're not looking for it. I didn't plant tomatoes. There are not any tomatoes in my backyard. You didn't do that, but God has in mind a harvest, and somebody else planted it. Somebody else, you know, got the ball rolling here. While you guys have been looking for lunch, this Samaritan woman, I had a conversation with her, and her life is so crazy. Look at all these people coming. The fields are ripe and ready for harvest, and you guys don't have a clue. It says, you know, one person plants and one person harvests. I mean, that's, that's true. That's how it works. If you're on the planting end, I don't know if some of you garden. The planting is kind of hard work. I, the only thing that I've ever grown is tomatoes. And when you start in the beginning of the, the season and you've got to dig up your garden and get all the weeds out of there, and then I use uh, string to tie up the vines and everything else, you've got to plant them, you've got to water them a lot and all of that stuff. It's a lot of work on the front end. It's not that fun. It's a whole lot more fun when you're making a salad and you go out and you go, hey, I'm going to grab some tomatoes off the vine. That's fun. That's where the payoff is. And what Jesus says is, you know, it's not really about who's planting and who's sowing because one day we'll be in heaven and the planter and the harvester are going to be together and they're going to like, ah, you planted the seed. I got to harvest. Did you see how that turned out? That's awesome. We got to do this together. And there's going to be this incredible celebration. And it, it didn't make any difference whether you just watered it or maybe you fertilized it. I not, you know, don't know what your role is in the relationship, but we all have the opportunity to play a part of this. And Jesus says, guys, it doesn't work like it does in the natural world. I'm talking about spiritual things. And there are people around us who are ripe if we'll only venture into conversation with them. We're not going to be able to maybe spot them with the same ease that Jesus did. We're not going to know until we engage them in conversation. Now John wraps up this account by telling us that because of this one woman, and what she told her neighbors, people in the town of Sychar were moved and transformed. Her story drew them to Jesus. And they urged Jesus to stay there and keep teaching them. And he hung out for an extra two days. He delayed his journey, rearranged his travel plans, and stayed for two days. And because of that, they recognized that Jesus wasn't just the Savior of the Jews. The passage ends by saying, 
He's a savior of all people, of the whole world. So when it comes to applying narratives out of the Gospels, there are lots of principles. There's a whole line of theology that's aimed at figuring out how do we understand Scripture and apply it to our life. Some passages in Scripture are very easy to do that with. So when James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, I know what that means. I understand. Hey, God wants me to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. But when you read a passage like this and you say, well, hmm, so what am I supposed to take away from this? What does he want to tell me out of this passage? Great place to start is, hey, what did Jesus say? What are some of the truths of his teaching or how did he treat people? And and clearly in this story, we learn that Jesus is a gift of God. It's not about earning it. It's not about being such a good person that God owes us. It's a gift. We don't deserve it. It's just by grace that we get to come to him. And we get life-giving water from him if we're open to it that springs up from the inside out. And that's exactly how his Holy Spirit changes us. When we invite Christ into our heart, when we decide we're going to follow him, it's an inside-out transformation. And it leads to eternal life. He's the long-awaited Messiah. And we see here that God doesn't really care about where you worship or how you worship as much as the heart of the worshiper. But then there's another layer of questions that wrap around the characters in the story. And I think a useful tool when you're reading any of these narratives, like last week, talking about it was Nicodemus and Jesus. And it's just very easy to say, okay, so what did Jesus do? Are there things there that, that are examples that I ought to follow? Or are there are places I see how Jesus handled things that provoke in me like, oh, I'm not like that. I ought to be more like him. Or are there ways that I'm like Nicodemus in that story? Good or bad, you know? Are there ways that I need to change because I recognize myself in this character? So just a quick look from four different angles here is, let's look at it from the perspective of Jesus here. What's cool about this is Jesus is busy. He's got a three-year clock on redeeming the world. Incredible pressure, crowds that just throng around him and blow his schedule. He has to sneak off just so he can get time alone with God. He has so much spiritual stuff to get done, and yet, here he is on his way to Galilee, very important ministry stuff to do, and he changes his schedule for Samaritans, not for eager Jews. He does this in other places with Romans, and like it's just crazy how he will modify his schedule and change his plans in spite of being tired, in spite of being hungry, in spite of having all kinds of responsibility. He takes the time for a conversation with a single person who's broken and in need. He starts with a conversation. He engages her. He starts with the immediate circumstances, and then he shifts the conversation to spiritual things, and then he begins to probe more personal aspects of her life. And with immense grace and also with truth, he speaks to her and helps her recognize her real need. And it changes her life forever. So, you know, are there things about us that need to change in order to be more like Jesus? Or let's think about it from the woman's perspective. We don't really know her background. We're not told why it was that she's had this string of failed relationships. But you think about it, if she hadn't gone from one relationship to the next, how would she have provided for herself or maybe for her children? The only other option available to her would have been probably prostitution. It's not like she could have gotten a job. 
thing about the woman, I, I see, you know, this is a person who has a lot of stuff that's broken in her life, and yet she's found a way to make it work. She's found a way to hide it from most people. She's found a way to rationalize it. It's not immediate to us, but that's us. I mean, you get that? We all have all kinds of brokenness, and we, especially if you're, you know, if you're in your 50s, you've got, a, what is that, a 35-year track record of hiding your stuff so that nobody else sees it. And you, you figure out a way to make it work. You know, it's like, well, when people get me upset, I'll just walk away, or I'll, I'll just break off the relationship, or I'll just, I'll blow up and, and scare them away, and that'll make them back down. And you figured out how to make your brokenness work. And to people like that, Jesus says, hey, you can do that. I mean, that's your choice. Or what about living water? What about this constant, refreshing, life-changing flow of abundant life that works on us from the inside out and brings change that way? If you don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about with living water, or if you, you know, have been thinking about, you know, God and all of that, but the idea of having a personal relationship with him doesn't make sense to you, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. There are a bunch of people around here who would love to talk to you, answer questions, have a cup of coffee. It's your call, but you've got to know there is living water available to you. And interestingly, this idea of the living water that wells up and leads to eternal life, I'm convinced it's not just eternal life for us. It's supposed to well up in us and splash over into the lives of people around us. So all the way back in Genesis, when God talks to Abraham and makes a, a covenant with him, he says, hey, I'm going to bless you. The reason I'm going to bless you is because I want you to be a blessing to the rest of the world. I'm going to bless you, but that's because I want you to bless other people. And it's the same thing with us. He says, I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to give you a wellspring of living water. That's not just for you. That's supposed to well up in you, and it's supposed to overflow enough that the people around you notice their feet are getting wet with my grace, with my love, with my compassion. And it's supposed to influence them as well. Think about it from the disciples' perspective. This is a great example of a bad example. <laughs> this is a very clear picture of missing the point when it comes to spiritual things, being caught up in the wrong things, letting good things keep us from engaging the better things, letting religious stuff, which is fine. I mean, I make my living doing religious stuff. I can relate to the disciples here. But sometimes when you get caught up in all of that, you miss out on the even better stuff the relational part of it that God wants us to focus on. Think about it from the perspective of the Samaritan neighbors. I mean, they were so glad to hear from this woman. Just the day before, they had spurned her and avoided her and looked down upon her because of her string of relational failures. And yet, because her life was changed, they saw a glimmer of hope for their lives. She had tasted living water, and it was welling up in her and they had a thirst for it. They were eager to hear more and, and zero in on Jesus. And I suspect that most of us have neighbors around us who are similar. They may not even know there is such a thing as living water. But if they could see it or get a taste of it, things might be different. I think about this personally. For me, I would say it's most easy to relate to the disciples. 
Uh, like I said, I, I get very caught up. I'm very busy in, in really important religious church stuff. That's my job, and I put a lot of time into it, and I tend to be a workaholic. So I do, I do a lot of stuff that looks really good on the report card. But I'm not very good at recognizing opportunities to slow down and have a conversation with somebody. I'm more inclined to look at somebody and go like, I don't think that guy wants to have a spiritual conversation. He's got tattoos. I, I'm thinking maybe I'm just going to leave him alone, you know. Or that's a very big guy and he's on a motorcycle. I'm, yeah, I'm not even going to talk to him. That's not going to end well. So I miss out on some of that stuff. I don't know about for you, but I hope you'll search for, like, what's a personal takeaway for you? I've got one for us as a church, too. The staff and elders spent Friday night and Saturday at a retreat center. We do this every year, kind of thinking about the future. And I think for us, one of the things that we recognized is that our plan, you know, our, our projection is that we might grow 20% in the next year. And we get in this building, more people are seeing it, and we could have 20% more people in the next year, and we need to think about that. We need to be prepared for that. Well, that, that's pretty good planning. We've studied other churches that opened buildings and, and analyzed, so how much did they grow? What did their budget do once they got in and they had that extra expense? Was there extra giving? So that's great to study and project and make plans and all that. But what if God were saying to us, you guys, you say, oh, it's a year and 20%. You, you don't even understand how this works. We're talking spiritually. And I've got people out there who are ripe for the harvest. The terrifying thing is, what if we double? What if we had to add a second service and we came to you and said, hey, we need 60 more people to help out with children and youth. I have a feeling some of you are going like, I don't know, middle school, that's Samaritans. That's a godforsaken land. I don't want anything to do with them. But are we that serious about focusing on spiritual outsiders? The overwhelming majority of us in this room are spiritual insiders. And I really think that what Jesus would say to us this morning is that new building, you know what? That's not for you. You're already in. I don't, it's not that I don't care about you guys. That building, though, is for the spiritual outsiders, the people who don't yet know. And I'm counting on you. They've got to see the living water in you. The question is, are we willing to let Christ change the trajectory? Are we willing to carve out more time in our schedule? Are we willing to be inconvenienced? Are we willing to step out of our comfort zone into great awkwardness to do what God calls us to do? About four or five years ago, my daughter Abigail took a break between junior and senior year of college to do a ministry called Mission Year. And Mission Year takes young adult believers, they raise their own support, and instead of saying, hey, why don't you guys go in and serve this under-resourced neighborhood, they say, why don't you go and live in this under-resourced neighborhood as under-resourced people? You know, if, if you want to love your neighbor, why don't you find out what it feels like to live in the neighborhood? So they raise their own support. Their food budget was $17 a week per person because that was what the average spending was per person in the low-income neighborhood in the north part of Houston, where she lived. There were eight young adults living in what used to be a portable trailer that a church had bought and made into Sunday school space. So eight young adults sharing one and a half bathrooms. 
and they worked all week long in homeless shelters and food banks and community service ministries, uh, babysitting kids while moms worked, English as a second language, you know, training for job interviews, sorting clothes so that people could dress up for a job interview, that kind of thing. Abby loved it because she got to put her Spanish language skills to good use. So they're a couple of months into this one-year assignment. It's Thanksgiving, and they say, let's throw a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, there's all that stuff in the Bible about a feast and invite people, and man, let's, let's do that. Let's have a dinner, and we'll invite all the people that we know. Let's invite the homeless people that we've been interacting with. So they invited all kinds of people. They made a whole bunch of food, and nobody came. <laughs> Oddly enough, homeless people and the idea of an RSVP or, you know, like, hey, you didn't Facebook message me. That doesn't happen. And so they had, you know, like one or two people stop by, and they were really disappointed. Late in the afternoon, knock on the door, and there's a lady there, this homeless woman, and they were like, oh, look, look, you know, Mary's here. And, and so they all gathered around, and they were like, yeah, come on in, we got plenty of food, we'd love to serve you. And then that excitement turns to confusion and dismay and just like paralysis because Mary has soiled herself. And... You know, none of these people have ever had a Thanksgiving guest show up like that. I, I don't know about you, but usually when my family comes over at Thanksgiving, not that problem that we deal with. And they were just kind of like, oh my gosh, what do we, what do, we do? Fortunately, there was, was somebody else that had been with the program the year before and was kind of helping them out. They were there for the dinner and they said, hey, why don't you go get a blanket and put it on the couch? Mary, you want to have a seat while we're waiting for dinner? And uh, hey, you want uh, some sweats to put on? You can use the bathroom and clean up if you want. You know, we're so glad you're here. And that kind of, you know, helped them realize, oh, okay, okay, yeah, now we can work with this. And she had dinner and they talked. So it was kind of a motley crew, but they always had people in. They loved having neighborhood kids in and just always had people in the house. And Mary left and I don't, I don't think they had any interaction with her again. I have no idea how that story ends. I do know that there are people around us, spiritual outsiders, and, you know, we go, well, I'll go talk to them. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone, and they're a cultural barrier or two beyond me, and we get up there and we realize, like, oh, my gosh, they have mess on them. Hey, we got mess on us, too. And I just hope that we are willing to love the Samaritans around us like Jesus did. Because Jesus, I think, would say, there are a lot of people out there that are ripe for the harvest, but are you ready for it? So I want to ask you guys to take a couple of minutes and just listen to God. We're going to have the worship team come back up, and they're just going to give us a little quiet music. I just want you to talk to God, and I hope you'll also do some listening. I have no idea what aspect of this story God might want to apply to your heart, but I think if you'll listen for his voice, if you'll take a couple of minutes now to begin a conversation that might even continue this week, he might want to say something to you. So would you bow your heads and we'll just take a couple of minutes and give you some time to talk with God.
Lord Jesus, we ask that you would hear our prayers this morning. We want to be so much more like you. And yet we recognize how clueless we are like your disciples and, and we miss opportunities all the time. And I pray that you give us eyes to see and a heart that compels us to love our neighbors and to be willing to approach people that may look like Samaritans and use us to love them and serve them and show them who you really are. I ask that you would do that this week, Lord, uh, in our homes, uh, among our extended family, at work, at school, in our sports, standing in the grocery store line. May we be people who overflow with living water. And may the people around us notice their feet getting wet with the grace of Jesus. And we pray this, Lord, in your name and give you honor and glory. Choir, why don't you join us? Come, you sinners. There is freedom. 
His mercy for All right. the Let's do love. that again, Mike. Come disciples. Let's do that again, y'all. Come disciples. Come and welcome. Here we go, choir. Come disciples. Come and welcome. Welcome others to the cross. There is freedom. There forgiveness. There is mercy for the Lord. I will arrive. I will arrive. 